Hello, brothers. It's good to be with you, even though it's virtual like this. Some of you have probably read ahead and see that we were in Genesis 36. And if you started to read any of Genesis 36, you might be wondering yourself right now, what in the world is Todd going to do with Genesis 36? And I would have to confess to you that when I read Genesis 36 for the first time, I thought to myself, what in the world am I going to do with Genesis 36? This is the, the wrapping up of Esau's life. And it is a whole bunch of verses that just describe genealogies and names and places and tribes and kings. And at first glance, you think, ah, how does this, how does this apply to my life? But we know, and we're told in God's word that all scripture is God-breathed and is helpful for us in our training in righteousness. So it's all scripture, even Genesis 36. So this is what we're going to do. Um, we're going to read the first eight verses. I'm not going to read all of it, um, mostly because I would slaughter the names. And you might just be laughing. You wouldn't be paying attention anymore as I slaughtered these names. And we're going to read those first eight verses. Then we're going to pray uh, for the Holy Spirit um, to help us to understand what he wants to teach us today. And then we'll dive into the passage. So let's read Genesis 36, uh, verses 1 through 8. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Ohilabama, the daughter of Anna, uh, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, and Basamath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Neboeth, and Ada bore Esau, Eliphaz, Basamath bore Rahul, and Olabahama bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. And he went into a land far away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. Let's pray together, brothers. Heavenly Father, we are here to sit under your word, to submit ourselves, knowing um, that your word is, is, uh, is inspired and that, Lord, you have something to teach us today. And so please, we ask, we are your servants. We are waiting Holy Spirit, teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, one of my favorite movies uh, in the whole world is the movie Remember the Titans. It came out about 20, a little over 20 years ago. I know a lot of you have seen that movie. It's the story of uh, a real high school, T.C. Williams High School in Alexandria, Virginia, that was integrated in the late 60s, mid to late 60s. It's about their football team and how um, the football team was used to really bring the school together uh, amidst the tensions that existed during the desegregation of schools uh, during that time. And the story centers around an African-American coach that was hired there, uh, Herman Boone, and then also uh, the assistant coach, a, a white guy named uh, Coach Yost. Coach Yost was the defensive coordinator. Herman Boone was the head coach and the offensive coordinator. And it, talk, it spends a lot of time looking at their relationship as well as the relationship of the players. 
And if you've seen the movie, you remember that the real high moment, or at least maybe it's for me, the high moment for me, they were playing in the Northern Virginia Regional Championship. And Coach Yost, the white coach, has been told by the school board that, listen, we've set this game up so that uh, that Coach Boone is going to lose it. And when he loses it, we're going to be able to remove him from his spot. Um, and we're going to be able to put you in there because we didn't want an African-American coaching our football team. And Coach Yost doesn't know what to do with this exactly. Uh, and he's not sure how it's going to play out. But they go into the game. And quickly, he realizes that the referees are stacked against them. The referees are calling holding penalties, blocking the back penalties, just penalties that don't even exist. He keeps calling them. Coach Boone is getting more and more angry. Um, and he recognized, Coach Yost recognizes, oh, wow, they're really going to do this. They have stacked the game against him. In this high moment of the movie, he calls a timeout. Coach Yost calls a timeout. He finally speaks up. He walks up to the referee and he says, I know what you're doing. You need to stop doing it. The referee acts like he doesn't know what's going on. Then Coach Yost goes to the sidelines and he brings his players. He says, players, come here, on me, on me. And he looks him in the eye and he says, listen, I do not want this other team to gain another yard. You blitz all night. Gives this incredible speech. They go back out there as a defense. And over the next four downs, they just demolish this other team. And then as they're coming off, because now the ball has a, a the, the T.C. Williams is now on offense. The defense is coming off, high-fiving each other. Coach Yost looks over at Coach Herman Boone, and he says, Herman, run up the score. Leave no doubt. Mm, I love that. I love that moment. Leave no doubt. You might be surprised to know that when it comes to the life of Esau, as people study the Bible, as theologians, scholars study the Bible, that there's a little bit of doubt surrounding Esau. Some, some of this doubt, or this doubt really centers around some who would say, um, you know, we think that, that Esau, even to his death, never believed in Yahweh, was never a, 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 a God-fear in the way that Jacob was a God-fear. Um, others would say, you know, maybe he changed his life. Maybe things changed, certainly at the beginning of his life. And you see that. We, we've studied this. In chapter 25, clearly, Esau, it says, despised his birthright. Yes, it was true that Jacob um, finangled him out of what was going on uh, and lied and cheated for that. But, but you also see Esau just being flippant. Remember, Esau was just this, this good old boy hunter. He was the fun life of the party, womanizer, good looking, um, really good at hunting, obviously became very successful at business. Um, this was kind of the guy you'd want to hang out with, the guy you'd want to be friends with. Um, that was Esau, though he was crass. Uh, Hebrews tells us clearly that that he was a that he was a crass person. Um, he despised his earth birthright, and then after he was cheated out of the blessing in uh, chapter twenty-seven of Genesis, you see that he wants to kill Jacob. He's bent on killing Jacob, so Jacob has to flee. His mom tells him, "Listen, Jacob, you need to get out of here. Your brother wants to kill you." Uh, and then in chapter 28, instead of seeking to marry uh, someone that uh, would, would fit with the covenant family of God, um, he goes out, Esau goes out, and he marries an, an Ishmaelite. Um, so you see at the beginning of his life, uh, just this angry, um, living for the moment, crass womanizer doing whatever he wants um, and being flippant about his birthright in the covenant family of God. Uh, but then later on, you see someone different. 
Um, you see when he does meet up with Jacob years later, that instead of taking out vengeance on Jacob, you see there in chapter 33 that he that he runs to him, that he that he it says he fell on his neck and he kissed him, that they both wept, um, that he truly reconciles. He doesn't demand out of Jacob. He he truly seems to have forgiven him. And then even at the very end, we read this last week, the end of verse uh, chapter 35, that there they are together, Jacob and Esau, burying their father, Isaac, um, clearly reconciled. And I know that there's New Testament um, verses. I already mentioned the one in Hebrews chapter 12 that speaks about um, not having an unbelieving uh, heart, not being like one who, who is like Esau. And also, Romans chapter 9, when it's speaking about uh, being chosen in Christ and God's sovereignty and salvation, uh, it quotes from Malachi chapter 1, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Uh, But remember when we studied that, we said um, that that quote from Malachi has to do with the nations of Israel and Edom, uh, the descendants of Jacob and Esau. It didn't have to do with the specific men, Jacob and Esau. Um, the Malachi quote, but then of course it's it's uh, it's debated in Romans nine. Does this have to do with the nations, or does this have to do um, with the men? And wherever you land on that, and I'd be happy at some other time to tell you where I land on that. The reality is there's there's this doubt. So if if at all Esau did become a follower of Yahweh at the end of his life, we're not sure. We're not sure. One of my favorite pastors, uh, Kent Hughes, was a pastor for a long time up in Wheaton, Illinois, has written a lot of commentaries. Uh, he asked this question, have you ever been to a funeral of a, of a man who maybe was sort of connected with your church? Um, uh, maybe he was a member. Um, maybe he was just a friend of yours that uh, you knew and and his family's asked him to ask the church that, that you go to or another church to, to have a funeral memorial service in that church, to have a, a Christian memorial service or a Christian funeral. Um, and you're there. And, and while you might never say it out loud, you do wonder, um, was, this, was this friend of mine a believer? Uh, I know um, he was a, I know he was a, a good man. There's some good things about him and you know, I could probably name some things, but I, I, I don't know if he actually was following Christ, if he really did have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And let me just say, when I talk about this doubt, I, I'm not talking about earning God's favor. When we say leave no doubt in our lives, I'm not talking about earning God's favor. I'm talking about living a life that shows evidence that we've been changed from the inside out, actually living out our faith. You know, there's these interesting verses in Philippians chapter 2, and I do invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. You remember at the beginning of Philippians chapter 2, Paul is appealing for unity um, and graciousness in the body of Christ, and then appeals to the example of Jesus Christ himself, who didn't think equality with God was something to be held on to, but made himself a servant, and that that should be our example of how we treat each other. But then, look what it says in verse 12 of Philippians chapter 2. 
<coughs> excuse me. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's speaking to the Philippians about their responsibility in, in sanctification to, to actually pursue obedience on purpose. He, he, he uses his work out your own salvation, like live it out with fear and trembling. Understand the seriousness of walking in obedience. But lest we think this is a works-based righteousness, look what it says in verse 13, and this is the same sentence. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work his good pleasure. As we look at those verses, we recognize that it is the Holy Spirit who changes our heart, who gives us a new heart. It is the Holy Spirit who directs our steps. But we're not passive. We're not passive in this. And as, as, as we who have claimed to be followers of Jesus um, live out uh, our lives on this earth, I think what Paul is saying here is, leave no doubt. Leave no doubt for anybody that you follow Jesus. Leave no doubt for anyone that, that Christ is the center of your life, that, that he saved you. That you are responding to his grace. Again, this is not works-based righteousness. Instead, it's grace-based righteousness, which lives itself out in obedience, free to obey, because we've been forgiven, because we've been given a new heart. Paul says, leave no doubt. So what do we see here in these verses? We see, first of all, in, in verses 1 through 5, we see the relationships, particularly the marriage relationships that Esau had. And there's some doubt there as to whether or not he was a follower of God. Um, you'll notice that at the beginning, at verse 1 and at verse 8, uh, that um, Moses is, is wanting to make sure we understand, actually wanting to make sure that the people there in the desert um, understood um that Esau is Edom. He is the father of the Edomites. And the Edomite nation, as you see, as you read through scripture, um, was always the, the, the main rival of, of, um, of Israel. They are right in that land. Um, so Esau is Edom, and it says he took wives from the Canaanites. He compromised in his relationships. So even if he were a, a someone who was seeking Yahweh, he chose to marry someone who, who wasn't. And I say we need to be very careful that we we don't compromise in our relationships. Now hear me, brothers, I'm not I'm not saying at all that we aren't good friends to everyone we meet. I think we need to be. I think we need to do a good job of being hospitable and kind and and seeking friendship um, among all those around us. Um, that's clear in Scripture. But it's also clear in Scripture But that our close friends, our close relationships, um, those places where we're yoked together, um, that, that those kind of relationships need to be with people who point you to God. They need to be people who are, who are on the same journey you're on. They need to be people who are, who are seeking to walk in obedience because they've experienced the grace of God. Those are the people that we need to develop close relationships with, and we cannot compromise that. In our relationships, brothers, let's leave no doubt that we are followers of Jesus. 
go on in, in verses 6 through 8 of chapter 36, it sees you see there that it talks about that Esau left Cana and moved to the hill country of Seir. And it says that he did this because, as he put it, or as it's put there, that that uh, that the the possessions were too great for them to dwell together, that because their livestock, the land couldn't handle everything that they had. Well, this is questionable because we read earlier in chapter 34, remember chapter 34, uh, Haram and Shechem, when they were speaking uh, to, to uh, Judah and his brothers, remember they said clearly, um, no, this land is large enough for all of us. <laughs> so you just wonder, um, is that just an excuse that Esau made to move away? Um, he's choosing, choosing to dwell somewhere away from Jacob, away from God's covenant people. And it's made me wonder, where, where, do, where do we choose to dwell? And I don't just mean what neighborhood do we choose to live in, but where do we choose to actually live out our lives? You know, we, we talk at Second Presbyterian Church that part of being an obedient follower of Jesus is that um, your church family would be your primary community. Certainly, we have a school community and we have a business community. We might even have a neighborhood community. But our primary community is to be the household of God, to be our, our church community. And so where is it, brothers, that you dwell? Are you dwelling in that place? Or are you, have you chosen another community uh, with which to dwell that's moving away, that moves you away, um, even, even physically, certainly time-wise, from your church family, from your church community? And, and let me just say, to make this clear, as those of us who follow Jesus, as those who, as God's Word says, have the light, it is important that, that you and I move into places of darkness in order that we might be light in the darkness. That is very true. Um, but we need to be careful uh, that we don't dwell there unless we've been given a mission by God to dwell there. And we're very clear about how we're bring, trying to bring light into that darkness. What do I mean by that? What's an example? Let's use an example that doesn't have anything to do with us. It'll make us feel better. Let's use an example of some of our uh, our sons and our grandsons going off to college, and they're going to join a fraternity. And I've talked to Christian young men about this. Talked to my uh, my own kids about this. Um, just you know, what's the purpose for joining this fraternity, or what's the purpose for moving into the fraternity house? You know, when you're a sophomore or junior. And, you know, I've had some guys tell me, oh, I just feel like God is really leading me to to be a light in the darkness. And then I'll say, okay, well, how are you going to do that? You got some buddies who are who have that same mission with you because it's going to be tough to be in that place, to dwell in that place, and still live out your faith and not be influenced. Yes, be light in the darkness, but how are you doing that? But honestly, a lot of guys just never think about it. A lot of college guys who are Christ followers just literally never think about the impact of dwelling in a place that might might be primarily darkness and its effect on them. And then, of course, we see it. We see it does have an effect on you. When you compromise the place in which you dwell and you don't have a mission there, it really, it really puts you at risk. And again, I say to all of us, brothers, when we think about where we dwell, let's leave no doubt that we're followers of Jesus. Let's work that out. 
Well, it goes on in verses 9 through 14 of chapter 36 to speak about uh, Esau's uh, sons. And it's interesting, he, he has 12 sons, similar to uh, Jacob. Um, that is a the fascinating a parallel there. And it appears he has a pretty strong family. Um, it seems like things are going well. I mean, he, he, has, he has 12 children. Um, um, they have children. Uh, it seems like his family is successful. We're going to see that more and more played out in the verses that are ahead of us there. And of course, a lot of times when when you think someone, you look at a, a man and you see him kind of have a, a good, a strong family, you can just um, say, "Well, you know, there's something there. There's he's a he's a you know he's a he's a good man, and he's got a good family. He must be a good man." And yet, you and I know that whether it's in a friend of ours or maybe it's been in our own life, um, we've been tempted, haven't we, to use family as kind of our salvation. Um, you know, I think even Christians often think of, of, of being family centered as, as the ultimate, of course, the ultimate is Christ centered. Um, we want to be Christ centered families, not family centered families, but sometimes even in Christian circles, the emphasis is on family centered families, which is not accurate, which is not fit scripture, which, which is dangerous, which, which can cause problems in our lives. And you have to ask yourself the question, does, does being a family man, does being a family man automatically make us God's man? And I would say to you, it doesn't. I know plenty of men who are family men who have good, strong families and have been blessed by that, but they haven't necessarily been God's man. And we do need to lead our families, brother. We, we know that. We, we saw that last week. When we looked at uh, Jacob thirty, uh, Jacob in chapter thirty-five, when finally, after all these years, it says he decided. Well, he doesn't say he decided. He did. He he led his family. He said, "Hey, listen, we're going to set ourselves apart. We're going to put on new clothes. We're going to get rid of our idols." And he didn't just do it for himself. He he sought to lead his family in this. And where was he leading his family? See, that's key. It's not just that you and I lead our family. It's that we lead them to the Lord. It's not that we're just leading them to have good jobs, our sons and our grandsons and our daughters and our granddaughters. We're not just leading them to have good families. We're not just leading them to have good educations. All those things are great. But as a follower of Jesus, it's not just about leading them to those places, leading them to success. No, it's about leading them to the Lord. And again, I say to us, let's leave no doubt when it comes to leading our family to the Lord, that that's what we're doing. And then you see in verses 15 through 30, it goes from Esau's family and expands to uh, how his family really became tribal communities. Uh, and you can, again, read that on your own. I don't want to slaughter the names there. And so as his family evolves into tribal communities, you also notice there uh, in verses 20 through 30, that now it picks up on the inhabitants of the land, the inhabitants of the hill country of Seir. And you see that not only are they intermarrying with the, the hill country, uh, the people in the land of Seir, but it appears that, that pretty much the success of Esau's family through these tribal communities makes it so that that Esau's tribal families, they really dominate the hill country of Seir. Um, 
basically they become the main family. They become the the, the ones who control uh, the land and all these different tribal communities uh, as they intermarry. And you have to ask yourself, wasn't well, this God's blessing? I mean, certainly the success that's taking place here. Uh, and that's the, the Lord is the one that grants success. Um, maybe this success is a is a um, uh, an affirmation by God that 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 Esau really was a, a a follower of Yahweh at the end of his life, and God is letting him and his family have this success. Well, I would say it's certainly God's doing. Um, God is the one that causes these things to happen. God is the one who um, is raising up Edom to be a rival. But as you look throughout the history of Israel and Edom, you see that Edom is um, usually subservient. But there is a lot of tension there. And that, of course, goes back to what we read at the birth of Jacob and Esau, that there would be that tension, that they would be the father of two nations, but that those nations would always be in tension, and that Jacob, Israel, um, would be the one that would lead, and Edom, Esau, would serve. So certainly, God is in that, but you can't just automatically jump to say, if somebody is successful, that means God, that God is affirming their life. And sometimes we do that, brothers. Sometimes we, we can think that success in our work Success in our business means that God is affirming my life or affirming what I do. Well, that's not always true. Um, in the same way that when you when you go through suffering, when you go through struggle in your business, when you lose your business, that doesn't mean that God is somehow um, condemning you or or placing judgment upon you. Um, no, we we see in the book of Job certainly the very opening chapter. When Job loses everything, and what is Job's response? He says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. By the way, just as a side note, and you look at some of the names here um, in this genealogy in regards to Edom, you'll notice some names that you'll see in the book of Job. And scholars believe that it seems that uh, that Job lived um and Edom lived uh, in that area of the world. Um, now, as you look at the book of Job and you think about uh, his pursuit of Yahweh and yet all of his suffering, um, we recognize, don't we? We recognize in our own lives. We recognize around us that it's often in struggle and in loss, not in success, but in struggle and in loss that you and I best display the character of God. So it, does, it is not true that, that success of a man's life, success in his work, success in his business, success in his finances, means that he is being affirmed by God as someone who's living a godly life. Neither does it mean that someone who struggles in those areas, who struggles in business, struggles in his work, goes through stuff, suffering, goes through loss, that somehow God is, is bringing judgment or is disappointed um, in his walk. No, God is the one who does that, and he does those things as he see fit, sees fit. And sometimes we understand, sometimes we, know we don't. But we do know this, that often in our, in our suffering, in our struggle, it's our best opportunity to display God's character. 
And so again, I would say, brothers, whether whether you are right now enjoying success in your work, or whether you are really struggling with loss and and pain, let's leave no doubt. Let's leave no doubt that that we follow Jesus no matter what. Um, let's display uh, His character in the midst of that. And then finally, in verses thirty-one through forty-three, you see the the, the tribal uh, families, uh, the the overtaking of the the whole area of the hill country of Seir now moves into these kings. In verse 31, it says, these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. And some of you might have read that. Oh, well, wait a second. Um, this is written by Moses uh, during um, the wanderings in the desert with the Israelites before they arrived in the promised land. Uh, did he, did somebody here predict that there was going to be kings in Israel? Because remember, they weren't they don't have a king until Saul, and that comes much later. Well, what we have here, uh, brothers, um, is that um, uh, you have a later, uh, an updating, I should say, of the book of Genesis by a later author um, who probably after the time of Saul um, adds in this piece here to fill out the whole story of Esau and Edomites. And lest you're getting worried that this is some kind of you know, liberal statement that doesn't believe in the infallibility of Scripture. No, um, this happens in several other places. In fact, if you turn back uh, to chapter 14, remember in chapter 14, uh, we studied, uh, gosh, almost a year ago when Abraham rescues Lot. uh, And it says this in chapter 14, verse 14, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Well, Dan is, a, is, an, is an area of designation as a result of you know, the tribes of Israel later on. Um, Dan didn't actually exist. It wasn't called Dan at the time that Moses wrote this. So what has happened is that um, a later author has come in and added uh, more clarity there uh, so that God's people would know where this was. Again, it doesn't change the meaning. It doesn't mean that God's word is not infallible. It doesn't mean that Moses is not the primary author of the Pentateuch. Um, But I did want you to know what that meant. For some of you who are thinking that's a little more than I needed, Todd, but just in case, I wanted to make sure you saw that. But what's the deal here? As we look at these last verses of chapter 36, verses 31 through 43, these kings well, this is the this is the legacy of of Esau, his sons, the tribal communities, um, them becoming the nation uh, of Edom, um, and here are these kings, not necessarily hereditary um, uh, kings, um, but kings who were chosen uh, in different times and in different places uh, to be kings over Edom. This is Esau's legacy. This is where it all ends up. Um, one of my sons, uh, for the longest time, I, I I meant to ask him if he's still wearing it. He had a little little rubber uh, band around his wrist, and on it it just says "Leave a legacy." And I've thought often um, he will he will leave a legacy. I will leave a legacy. You will leave a legacy. All of us will. The question is, what will it be? Every single one of us is going to to leave. 
um, a, a legacy. Uh, this is what I was about. This is what my family was about. And, and it's going to play out in the years and the decades. And if Christ doesn't return, even in the centuries that follow, we're all going to leave a legacy. The question is, what will it be? And again, I would say one more time, leave no doubt as you and I are on the face of this earth right now, let us not leave any doubt that we would desire the legacy of our lives be that Christ was the center, that Christ was the king, that Christ was everything to us, that he was, he was the prize, that he was the goal, and that our lives were oriented around him. Let us leave no doubt about that, even as we see Esau leaving doubt among scholars about where his life ended. And as we study God's word together and continue, um, as we've studied the life of Jacob and all of its struggles, and now it's, it's wrapped up for us. And as we study the life of Esau with all its successes and all its um, um, conflict and the doubt, and when we go to study the life of Joseph, which we're about to do next week, and that's going to be uh, an exciting run all the way to December as we study the life of Joseph. Let's pray together as we study God's word and we put it into action. Let's be praying together. Heavenly Father, help me not just to be a good man, but help me to be God's man and help me. Heavenly Father, to leave no doubt. Let's pray. Father, you've heard this prayer. And I ask that you would seal these words to our hearts. And you would work them by your grace and your mercy in us. Um, that we might not just be good men. But Heavenly Father, that by your Spirit's power, you would make us God's men. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.